What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning, genocide, objectification of kids, and lots of pointy objects. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What Mad Universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. entered, but he entered full of wrath. His flaming robes streamed out beyond his heels, and gave a roar as if of earthly fire that scared away the meek ethereal hours, and made their dove wings tremble. On he flared, from stately nave to nave, from vault to vault, through bowers of fragment and unwreathed light, and diamond-paved lustrous long arcade, until he reached the great main cupola. There standing fierce beneath, he stamped his foot, and from the basements deep to the high towers jarred his own golden region, and before the quavering thunder thereupon had ceased, his voice leapt out despite of godlike His voice leapt out despite of godlike curb, to this result O dreams of day and night, O monstrous forms, O effigies of pain, O spectres busy in a cold, cold gloom, O lank eared phantoms of black weeded pools, why do I know ye? Why have I seen ye? Where is my eternal essence thus distraught, to see and to behold these horrors new? Saturn is fallen, am I too to fall? Am I to leave this haven of my rest, this cradle of my glory, this soft climb, this calm luxuriance of blissful light, these crystalline pavilions and pure fanes of all my lucent empire? It is left deserted, void, nor any haunt of mine. The blaze, the splendor, and the symmetry I cannot see, but darkness, death and darkness, even here, into my center of repose, the shady visions come to domineer, insult and blind and stifle up my pomp. Fall, no, by Tellus and her briny robes. Over the fiery frontier of my realms, I will advance a terrible right arm. Shall scare that infant thunderer, rebel Jove, and bid old Saturn take his throne again. He spake and ceased, the while a heavier threat held struggle with his throat, but came not forth. For, as in the theaters of crowded men, hubbub increases more, they call out hush, so at Hyperion's words the phantoms pale bestirred themselves thrice horrible and cold, and from the mirrored level where he stood a mist arose as from a scummy marsh. At this, through all his bulk and agony, crept gradual from the feet unto the crown, like a lithe serpent vast and muscular, making slow way with head and neck convulsed. From overstrained might, released he fled to the eastern gates, and full six dewy hours, before the dawn and seasoned dew should blush, he breathed fierce breath against the sleepy portals, cleared them of heavy vapors, burst them wide, suddenly on the ocean's chilly streams. Hello everyone, welcome once again to season four of What Mad Universe. Uh, I'm Adam Prosser, with me as always is Philip Rice. Hello. And uh, we're joined today once again by our friend Andre Gordon. 
Hey, guys. Hey, good to have you, Andre. Uh, and uh, Andre's, uh, actually, at Andre's own request, uh, we're going to start the season with a look at Hyperion, or rather the entire Hyperion Kentos by Dan Simmons. We're just going to pause here for a word from our new sponsor, uh, the uh, Tokyo Beat Podcast Network, and we'll be right back after this. Today's show is brought to you by Epos Gaming Audio. With a comprehensive lineup of both wired and wireless headsets, gaming amplifiers, microphones, and webcams, Epos has everything you need to experience the power of audio. Like their H6 Pro lineup, which features two versions, an open or closed headset, the closed headset allows you to tap into exceptionally detailed audio and seals out ambient noise, while the open version delivers natural high-fidelity audio with an incredible soundstage. Both headsets include a magnetic, detachable microphone and a sleek design that has no wild RGB configurations, just good design. Listeners can save by visiting www.eposaudio.com gaming and entering code EPOSFRIEND15 at checkout to save 15%. We're the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. I'm David. I'm Jordan. We're a comedy lifestyle podcast diving into the weird and interesting side of Japan. We often share stories about our lives in Japan, you know, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes. So if you want to take advice from two idiots who have been living here far too long, check out the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. All right, and we're back. So, okay, we're going to start off by looking at the Hyperion Cantos by Dan Simmons. Um, which was published, I think, uh, tail end of the 80s it, uh, was the first book. Um, yes. A- yeah. 89, and the second was 90, and that's all I've read, but you you guys have read more, so, yeah. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, as I say, it was uh, Andre's suggestion. Um, so, uh, Andre, what was it that made you uh, want us to talk about this particular book? Okay, so I, for me, when I think of science fiction, I think of like sort of eras of, of, of new ideas of bringing new things into science fiction. Um, Isaac Asimov brought ideas of humanity and robots. Dune brought an ecology and the, um, the and messiah figures, things like this. This one thing I think for this um, world universe that was created by mis- by, by the author, I think. The idea of poetry, bringing the, the poetic idea of bringing uh, po- poetic sympathies into um, science fiction is just something I've never really experienced before. Um, Hyperion, as uh, the the poem, is obviously an, an inspiration of Hyperion book, um, and they're very very directly related. Um, and I think that the idea of doing that, I think, is just just genius to me. And I, I really just loved um, seeing how the world's the world building kind of. Uh, flows and I, I and I argue a very poetic fashion. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It is very, uh, very heavy with world building. And yes, it's it's a uh, he, he's clearly into uh, John Keats, the the uh, the uh, the poet who is uh, not just the writer of the poems Hyperion and Fall of Hyperion, uh, but uh, and Endymion, uh, but also he's literally a character in the story, or rather a robot. AI reconstruction of him is a character mm-hmm. uh, of the characters. But then the other thing, interestingly, that everyone uh, references with these, um, th- this is how I heard about it, not the John Keats thing. Uh, what I'd heard about was uh, that it was based on the Canterbury Tales, which is true of the first book. Um, yes. Yeah, it uses that sort of model of the Canterbury Tales. Um, 
uh, it's not like heavily drawing from the stories, but it it's it's the same basic structure of the Canterbury Tales, right? Yes, for sure. It's the whole idea of um, multiple stories telling one real one 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 central story, and like the the first book, I feel is genius because he just it gives him the license to do practically whatever he wants. Like he starts with a sort of body horror short story. There's a detective story in there. There's like a, I argue, a slapstick comedy with um, with, with some of the stuff happening in the, some of the other stories. So, and like all of this to build the world of, uh, of the Hyperion universe. I think it was a really, really genius idea. Yeah, it, that, yeah, that's the thing. The first book is really like you're listening to a bunch of different stories from different uh, like different genres, really. Uh, at first, they merged together. After that, he stops sort of doing that. But um, like, it's all set in the same world. Uh, but somehow, you're able to get a cyberpunk detective story, uh, uh, a comedy, you know, a, a war story. Like, it's all it all sort of blurs together. So it's not ultimately that huge a part of the book. Uh, <laughs> like, even though Canterbury Tales is obviously the model, uh, the uh, the John Keats poem is uh, a much bigger. Uh, part of it uh, clearly that's something that heavily inspired um, Dan Simmons when he wrote it because not only does it draw like references and names from the poem um, and even like uh, the poet Martin Silanus who's one of the main characters of one of the pilgrims um, is writing a poem that comes off as very similar to the Hyperion story um, it's um, it, 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 he uses the themes as well like the the themes of the poem are you know we'll get into it but it they're they're apocalyptic it's it's based on what's called the Titomachia, which is the um uh the fall of the do do either of you know what i'm talking about here yes, wanna, yes, wanna the, make the, a, yeah um please, please the war between the um uh titans and the olympian gods or what would become the olympian gods and it's often considered uh, to represent um like the uh the pre-greek gods like the the pagan you know the pagans pagan gods being replaced with sort of the gods of nature being replaced with the gods of civilization in the olympians yeah exactly it was it was like pre a pre an earlier cultures uh deities being replaced with uh the olympian gods and it got uh, I'm not mythologized sh- into a story where it's an actual war between the two of them which is right um, i mean a lot of cultures do that like all of Irish mythology is that basically right. just endless conquests and they get con- you know conquered and then so on. Mm-hmm. Well, because in this in this duology, just to be clear, uh, this this series, the Hyperion Cantos, is uh, it's essentially two duologies. It's the Hyperion Fall of Hyperion and then Endymion Rise of Endymion. And the the first two books and the last two books are essentially one big narrative broken into two parts. Um, and um, in, in... I mean, one would argue both books, yeah, both. It's really just he wrote two books and then broke them up in four. <laughs> one could argue. Yeah, yeah. Although the first one being um, like very similar, specifically structured very... around the Canterbury Tales, and the second one isn't. The second one resolves the story, right? So yeah, it's, one, it's more one full narrative. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I can see why he divided them that way. Like it does make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, one thing he actually mentions is that um, uh, in this, in the poem Martin Silanus is writing. Um, it's the Olympians uh, represent AI, artificial intelligence, um, Mm -hmm. uh, which is potentially replacing the Titans who are the humans. Um, And that's actually a really interesting... So that's like, that's the the subtext that he brings to it. Presumably John Keats had some kind of subtext that he was bringing to the original poem when he wrote it. 
Um, and so I was just wondering if anyone happened to know what that was, basically. I, I should have done this research. I, I mean, frankly, given the, the context of the, the life he was, like, the, the times he was living in, he was likely talking about, um, was it, he was in the 1800s, right? Remember, yeah, early, ni- early 19th century. So, yeah, like 1812. 18, I think they said he died in 1822, something like that. Yeah, so like that's like the, the progenitor of like the dawn of modern physics, one could argue, and think and like the sort of the discoveries that we that would affect us today, mm-hmm. um, and sort of the technology, the beginnings of the industrial revolution. So one could argue like the dawn of nature, the, the fall of nature, the, the natural gods and the worshiping of the industrial gods. One could argue could be a version of what we're talking about here. This is me openly spitballing. I have not actually jumped into this, but it's poetry. We can you, you can interpret. It I I, I think you've got a good point, though, because he was a romantic poet, and that's the kind of thing the romantic poets wrote about, uh, I think. So, yeah, yeah, I think you're I think you're on the right track with that. And uh, notably, the uh, the poem about Hyperion isn't just uh, the, you know, the inevitable end. It's actually Hyperion fights back against the Olympians. That's the point of it. It's about how, uh, you know, the change, the the world that's being left behind can actually fight back in some ways. Um, And that's something the romantics probably were interested in as well. Um, but anyway, so, uh, let's just quickly go over what this, uh, actual book's, uh, story is about. Uh, in this case, it's, um, going to, uh, a world called Hyperion, uh, in, it's about 800 years in the future, um, and there is a, uh, a network of things called the Farcaster portals that, uh, transit people from instantly across the galaxy. If you've built a portal, you can go to one one end. They also have something called Hawking Drive, which is faster than light technology, but it still takes time to get places. So there are worlds called the Outback. They're further away. Uh, Not and just one... time, but uh, relativistic time. Like This is one of the few science fiction books I've read personally that sort of delve into like if you um, travel a certain distance, it's a short time for you, but everywhere else will have aged years. Um, right. So there. Yeah. So everybody has, or everybody who travels that way has something called a time debt. So like you can be, you can have a twelve-year time debt where you're just twelve years younger than everybody else. It's um, as the, um, it, it frankly, it, it's the, it's the, yeah, it's true. It's one of the only science fiction stories that actually takes that seriously and like considers time as a literal resource that you need to actually keep in mind when you're when you're traveling, which is important. The other one I can think of. Um, and I'm not hugely versed on, like, recent science fiction. So, I mean, there's probably more books dealing with this. But the other one I can think of is uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, where um, uh, that's sort of a plot point, why why the character um, um, leaves Earth and then comes back to see a, you know, post-ascension uh, Earth. Right. Because wow. it's hundreds of years later. Right, and the, and let's not forget the Forever War, which we did uh, oh, right, an episode right. about. Right, which yeah, has, is literally that, that. Yeah, as a premise. Yeah, that's 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 specifically the premise of like, yeah, I'm going. Uh, you, you, yeah, the time debt you accrue traveling around, and it's funny because in I think almost all of those, um, it's not straight up faster than light of just getting to near light speed, uh, which is you know you get the relativistic time dilation. In every case, there's still a way of traveling faster than the speed of light uh in one way or another and in this one as well like the hawking drive does actually tr- make you go faster than the speed of light but there's still relativistic time dilation um which is, so that's kind of interesting so even with uh even with time dilation your the time dead isn't too bad if it was lit- legitimately just 
light speed travel, the, you know, they'd be aging 800 years. You know, you'd be leaving behind a civilization to go travel to another planet, right? Um, totally. Yeah. Like, like, is it, like, the idea is that if you go close to the speed of light, time slows down, but you can never pass the speed of light. But in this, the Hawking drives, and yes, they are named after Stephen Hawking, um, uh, can tra travel faster than the speed of light, but there's still that time dilation a bit. So not on the same level. But uh, they've also got the Farcaster portals, which take them from place to, from planet to planet instantly, to the point where it's actually gotten a bit ridiculous. Like, so there's a there's a river called the River Tethys, which plays a big role later on, uh, which is a river that literally flows from planet to planet, and people can travel through the 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 portals all around this river. They can take a trip down this river and cross through a hundred planets. Uh, there's a guy if they're rich enough, like Martin Silanus, the poet, does become rich enough that he can um, literally have a house with rooms in different planets and when he goes to the bathroom he's actually going across the galaxy to a different different planet um yeah, the um the government war room is like that as well like it, it just um half the room is um a light you know light years away from the other half <laughs> yeah which is that's crazy like it's cool but it does feel like a big waste of resources but you do actually find out that there's actually a reason why uh there's there's so much in use um we'll get to that but oh, anyway it's, the... it's not like a teleporter in the in the star trek sense it's it's just a, a hole in space some sort of singularity that um that mm -hmm. you can step through right like a wormhole basically yeah effectively yeah, yeah it's a wormhole yeah. and but there's also i mean one of, the, one of the other things just to sort of a little a bit of another drop in is like what i really appreciate is frankly some of the, the scientific bents towards um the to, towards the story and frankly how i think ed simmons expertly weaves it into the poetry like the idea of the void which binds like which we will bring come back to later is ref is a reference to something that's heavily important going forward in the ai part of the story as well as the like how the telecasters work in terms of like them people are being flung through like the dark void in space, which I think is, which I just, I, I, I really like that. That was really, really fascinating to me. Yeah, it's interesting because the story is, it does have actual science, science like, it's, it's in no way a hard science fiction story. It does riff on some real science fiction ideas, but then at the same time, it's, it's very fantastical story. It has that new wave science fiction of just real weird stuff happening and it's like it's a very alien world hyperion is a very strange world uh when oh, they go yeah. there uh you mentioned uh martin silenus i i think that's how you pronounce it because he's named after a greek uh greek yes, figure yeah, the tutor of Di dionysus um very emotional reference yeah and and he he actually um uses genetic engineering at one point to turn himself into into a, a saturnine figure at least the the modern conception of you know the goat legs the sort of pan figure uh, right so he actually genetically engineers himself to have goat legs and a like ridiculously large penis <laughs> yeah there's a lot of stuff that like and just when they're traveling uh on hyperion they travel in like a a wagon that's pulled by sails at one point uh you know there's a castle they visit you hear about some of the planets they oh. go to like Nevermore, their spaceship which is, is like, a tree it's a giant tree <laughs> that's right yes the the tri the ship the specific ship they use there are more conventional ships but the ship they use to travel is run by these people called the templars who are very important to the story uh who are who basically travel the the worlds in a giant uh tree which is of course called yggdrasil after the norse uh world tree uh and um 
yeah, it, it's uh, they they have an entire planet called God's Grove full of these giant trees, which they use to uh, they put into ships and travel throughout the galaxy. Um, I just uh, I love the the planet titles in this. I mean Hi- Hyperion, obviously, um, but there Renaissance Vector, um, uh, Hebron, the Jewish planet, or the the planet settled by um, by uh, Jewish immigrants, um, Maui Covenant, uh, as you said, God. God's Grove, Tau Ceti Center, just really good science fiction fantasy names, you know? Yeah, at one point, and we do briefly see it in the later books, there's a there's a one planet called Nevermore, which is like a goth planet, apparently, <laughs> full of like dark ta- dark castles and stuff like that, which is funny. Yeah, and they're all implied to have their own thing. Like, uh, Lussus is, um, it seems to be described as a city planet, but it has super high gravity, so the people there are are shorter but extremely strong. Right, yeah, Bron Lamia, who's one of the pilgrims, is from Lysis, and it's she's like got super, well, not super strength, but like unusually strong musculature because of the high gravity world, which is again also kind of important to the story. Um, but yeah, like it's so it's like a combination of like hard science, but also you know, like I say, the new wave science, just the weird imagery that that shows up. Uh, is there anything cool you like about Andre and that that we haven't mentioned? I also just sort of like the idea of just the the truly, like, you know, the fantasticalness of like the the sorts of like like the, the the mysteries of the story in terms of like the time tombs, these gigantic labyrinthine gigantic worlds with like labyrinthine like gigantic labyrinths uh, underground that they never properly explain explain <laughs> like um, and like the whole idea of. Uh, Hyperion being a labyrinthine world and why those are important, etc. But also just the idea of like, I, I, when it comes when I, when it comes to science fiction, one of the reasons why I love Star Wars so much was it's like it, so much of it being set on Tatooine. Like the idea of I don't care about Coruscant, I don't care about the heart of the Empire, I don't care about all that shit. I care about like the dregs, those random worlds that people don't talk about enough. Like Hyperion is one of those worlds, mm-hmm. and to see the world, how, how those worlds interact with the bigger worlds. I think is a big, it's really cool. Like Foundation did this a little bit um, when it comes to the the Galactic Empire and the Foundation planet, um, but I think that uh, I think uh, they're, they're, uh, the uh, and frankly Dune, same thing with Dune, like with Arrakis and yes. the rest of the planet stuff. So I think there's like I, I think that there's that the, like Simmons is definitely lifting from from older stock, but I think he does this in in a really cool way. That's a really good point because it is like that's a big theme of the story is imperialism and like being in the empire or being like being at the central core of the empire or being this, uh, you know, uh, well, it's literally called the outback, but like being a border world that worth and and the, the way interesting things evolve out at the edges, not in the center of the world and how even just having a, a seemingly benign imperialist society sort of tends to stomp down and destroy these interesting um these interesting marginal uh societies uh that becomes bigger and bigger theme as well as the story goes on um oh uh, and good also we we get the uh the reveal that um they've been wiping out any species that might even present a threat at some point like any species that's showing a, a a glimmer of intelligence um is uh evolving at some point is wiped out and they they mention uh swamp centaurs and and um uh like blimp people on a jovian world yeah. and stuff um that are um 
yeah, just being completely uh, genocided. Yeah, yeah, it's it it is, it is in fact um, like that's a big thing. It's like this this seemingly America style <laughs> uh, hege- It's called the hegemony. Uh, all these worlds linked together on the, by the web as it's known uh this is right before the internet was famous so it's funny hearing it called the web um and um as it turns out the artificial intelligences that have been uh guiding them have actually been have sort of taken over and are controlling uh the society and they're 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 actually directing it in certain ways which has led to a certain stasis uh not coincidentally the world despite all the weirdness of the various worlds it ultimately comes down to a very american style system of government it's very it's capitalist the the leader of the uh, uh of the of the society is called the ceo uh mina what's her name mina gladstone um, mina gladstone, gladstone yeah yeah so she's 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 literally called the ceo she's the equivalent of the president and there is and a she's frequently a, compared to lincoln right yeah she's she's it, it's 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 very much like Oh, America in space, and here's why that's actually bad, because <laughs> you learn that uh, you know it's been uh, oppressing other societies, in particular the spaceborne societies, the ones who have been living out way away from the web and mostly living in deep space um, rather than settling planets, and they've been considered as sort of the you know uh, the the far flung. I guess you could say they're the equivalent of indigenous people in some ways, although there's also indigenous people on the various planets. Um, but they're, you know, they're far removed from the web, and they're seen as this weird, hostile, alien threat because they're so they're actually different from all the other societies. Uh, they've allowed themselves to uh, change. I mean, the Lusians have gone shorter, shorter and stronger, but they've like changed way beyond human standard. Um, like the the main. Uh, um, they're called the ousters the the main group that uh that come in contact are uh um sort of generations living in um uh low gravity like space station cities and they're like two meters tall and uh or like three meters tall and um have like um hands on their feet so they can you know uh because they're used to moving around in in no gravity environments and they they use artificial tails and we discovered that that that's actually the most sort of normal group of the ousters and there's like lion-headed people and and bug people and so on that yeah have, that have evolved on these different planets and adapt like or genetically engineered themselves to adapt to the uh local surroundings instead of terraforming yeah like it's the classic thing we we hear that the ousters are these monstrous beings that like raid worlds and devastate them and destroy them and they're they're these weird aliens and then once we actually hang out with them the consul who's sort of the main character of the first two books um he ends up uh, actually like meeting them and going to one of their conclaves and having a whole discussion with them and they're they're almost edenic like it's this it's this actually uh great society uh, very peaceful and they're actually you know uh, they're being falsely accused of raising worlds which apparently they're not doing it's actually the the AI, the artificial intelligence are 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 doing it and blaming the ousters and, and they're now oh you go ahead yeah. there there was an attack on on a uh, hegemony world uh that um fetman Kassad was involved in fighting back but that was just one clan not the entire ouster civilization yeah, there, there, yeah. there is conflict between the web and the ousters, but it's like they're being 
seen as they're being built up as this implacable, unstoppable enemy that will destroy us all. And they're about to, and as the story heats up in the second book, they're about to seemingly just raise the entire web and just destroy everything. And it's, it's going to require this new weapon that's going to just wipe out the ousters completely. And we learn it's all being engineered by the artificial intelligence because they want to basically wipe out the human race on both ends for, uh, in that way. Uh, sorry, Andre, you had something you were going to say there? Well, no, just a few things. I think that, like the just, the, just to think about like the the, the the way the time the time this was set. So obviously, the officers were probably. I feel I argue maybe Simmons would disagree with me. He was probably inspired by the Soviet Soviet Union at that point in terms of like those gigantic, unseen, monstrous people that don't don't ask about them. They're just evil, okay? Sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, waiting to invade, blah 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 blah. And in reality, it's like they probably want very similar things to you. To them and stuff, so I thought that I think there were, he was he was riffing off of that. But I also like the idea of like I think he's again inspired by previous versions of this, like the Fremen from Dune. I think maybe would have a similar situation here in terms of like you know wild quote unquote, quote unquote people who um, are only who are only set on destroying destroying the world. And I mean, in reality, they actually did, uh, but <laughs> but just does just as a similar sort of dynamic there. But I think also. What I really liked about the um, the, the the setup that the out like the the that was set up here with specifically Fall of Endymion, like, sorry, Fall of Hyperion, is the idea of humanity's fall will always be of its own of always be of its own making. Basically, it's like we should have basically. It's the idea of like wait if, if this because as I was reading it, I was like wait why are no one talking like, just talking to each other why is it why was it so easy for people to do this um like why was it easy for their artificial intelligence to do this when, when in reality it's like i didn't realize it's like well because we're very we just we were we we're constantly looking for um something to fight like there's um it's and especially the u.s comparison i think is really important it's uh, someone once uh, a person who's into defense policy that i really like said that the u.s is a super weapon looking for an enemy <laughs> there are gun there's a there's a gun looking it's a gun looking for a target so like the hegemony really was looking for an enemy and the technocore just had to give them one essentially um and i think that uh sort of riffing on that i think was i think was really genius um yeah yeah and and you know what that turns around and reminds me of a bit um is uh the matrix uh, which I can't help but think might have been somewhat inspired by this in its treatment of the artificial intelligences, because it's oh, for sure. it's it's not framed as a as a everyone living in a computer program, but rather the civilization has become a computer program, and the artificial intelligences are directing everything and making use of people. Because it turns out that by going through the farcasters, uh, the, uh, the the AIs can the technocores, it's called, can use your brains to help with for processing power basically um yeah also and, uh, the, the all thing the um sort of equivalent of the internet which everybody has their mind connected to um and they use that for processing power and i believe that was the original idea for what the machines were doing in the matrix but the studio asked them to dumb it down a bit so their batteries Yes, that's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, it's it's the fact that of humans being used as processing power by the machines. No, and I, just as an aside, I thought that was one of the most like as weird as it sounds. One of the reasons why I wanted to the wanted to do this book is for the the Technicore. Frankly, the twi- the two twists for the Technicore are one of the most one of the coolest twists I've ever read in science fiction. Because I was like, I was like, what the what? <laughs> I, I, I literally just didn't see it coming at all. 
Um, but this is one of those great twists where like, um, when you read it again, it makes complete sense, <laughs> you know? And I, I just, I, I just really, I just really, really enjoy that. I love the idea of the Technocore, like the, the, the there's, uh, which we'll probably get into the multiple factions of the Technocore saying like, well, all I care about is building ultimate intelligence. One, one, one faction just wants to destroy everyone, destroy us. The other ones are the moderates. But this, the idea that the Technocore keeps saying, there's so just factions of the Technocore that are obsessed with destroying humanity when in reality, like for them to function, they need humanity to do so. So I, I just, I, I love that. That was, I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah, and I don't know if uh, Andre, if you've seen the latest Matrix movie, the fourth one that they released recently. Yeah. yeah, and you'll notice they do get into that a bit. The idea that there are friendly AIs and there are AIs who say, "Yeah, we've got to change and we've got to evolve." Actually, both the evil ones and the good ones say, "Yeah, we've got to evolve if we're going to keep." keep pace and uh, you start to see like it creates a machine civil war the events of the other uh, matrix and that's something that's echoed very much in this book as well uh the mm-hmm. fact that the, the 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 question of humanity is causing this uh this uh massive civil war between the three factions which are called the uh, they're actually called the stables which are the people who want to basically oh. continue the existing system the volatiles who want to wipe out humanity and go their own way and uh, the ultimates who want to build machine god <laughs> and uh they're okay with whatever it gets them there and they mostly seem to be on the side of the volatiles but uh they don't really care as long as it gets them the machine god uh and this is actually a good time to mention the shrike which we have not actually mentioned yet um ah, yes the lord of pain <laughs> yes. yes the the, the, shrike. Um, the shrike i feel was like i i, I are it's one of those things where like put it this way Okay, I mean, we can get into this, but I think that the Shrike was one of those really interesting things because I'm going to argue Dan never completely explained what he was doing with the Shrike, and I think I really like that. I like the fact that at, at all times, the Shrike's motivations are always mysterious, in my opinion. Like, there are things that it's doing, but I'm not completely sure what the Shrike is doing, basically through 90% of the book, and I think that makes it really, really cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, the the Shrike is um, for people who haven't read it. You should re- be reading the book, but if you hadn't, um, the Shrike is the the monster. Effectively, it's uh, that uh, they are going to see on the pilgrimage. Sort of. It's a little vague. They're going to these things called the time tombs, which are apparently tombs that are opening backwards in time uh, and that are supposed to open at some point in the future. But like, or or, but it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of. Uh, complex because they're open but there's nothing inside but because they're moving backwards in time at some point they'll open open and then there will be things inside them when that happens um and there's uh, time tides so it's the idea like these like time is going back and forth and it's like um Mm -hmm. um i don't know a feel but it's hard to explain because it's all weird time travel-y stuff but yeah yeah time travel gets into a more and more a bigger and bigger thing and uh in in what's going on one of the pilgrims is a guy named Saul uh Weintraub uh who is a he's from that uh the world of Hebron as you mentioned and they tie him specifically into the story you know he's Jewish they tie him into the story of Abraham and Isaac uh because his daughter Rachel uh was investigating the time tomb she was an archaeologist and um she was hit by one of these anti-entropic fields and she started aging backwards which no one had ever done before she's the only person to whom this has ever happened uh and she's gotten younger and younger and Saul's uh reason for going on the pilgrimage is that he wants to get her back to the time tubes uh before she goes back so she's literally a baby when he's carrying her uh he wants to get her there before the the time tombs 
before she ages back into nothing and effectively dies or goes out of blinks out of existence um and um he's being faced with he had been faced his whole life with the choice of he'd been seeing visions of the shrike giving him basically the the abraham isaac choice of basically sacrifice your daughter seemingly although it's a little bit more ambiguous than that uh and he refused he said no it's you know what kind of a god would ask you to give up your beloved child uh so that's you know the paradox there is a big part of his story storytelling anyway the shrike is uh uh, go ahead i just wanted to that whole section is very heartbreaking like that yeah it, it it goes into detail like every every day she wakes up and she doesn't remember anything and she's because she goes back to the age she was because she like ages backwards a day every time she wakes up um and so uh like at one point her mother dies and he has to explain to her day after day for a while why her her mother isn't there um it just I, I it's really like emotional gut-wrenching stuff and it's um yeah it's yeah. it's one of those things like you you I mean obviously science fiction does this but it's not something you would necessarily expect out of science fiction if you don't know you know <laughs> Yeah, it's it's an it's actually got a bit of a, a Kurt Vonnegut quality almost because it's an absurd situation, but it's heartbreaking and emotional. And and Saul really is like he's the heart of the story. Like he's the one that we have the probably the most emotional connection to because of what's going on. You know, you really want to see him succeed. Uh, Braun really a bit. Martin Silenus, that jerk. Well, it's funny because Martin Silenus is probably thematically absolutely one of the most important characters. Uh, he's almost like the the iteration of the theme. Um, but so actually, that's what I want to tie into with the Shrike. So the Shrike is this uh, monster slash robot, although we're told it's more than a robot. Um, it is some kind of three meter tall, uh, multi armed uh, robot cybernetic monster uh, covered in spikes and sh- razor sharp thorns and wire and you know you can't touch it without getting a, a cut um and it's it, it's it like act- a quicksilver texture like it looks like it's like uh metal that's alive yeah it's got chrome uh finish it's it's got blazing red eyes um it's uh it like multi jaws like multi-road jaws uh and a lot of the time, it kills people, unsurprisingly. Uh, but it doesn't only do that. It acts, as as uh, Andre was saying, it acts in a very sometimes mysterious manner. And it was, uh, as the story goes on, and get, they get into this more and more in the in the later books, but they st- I don't think we ever find out 100% uh, who sent it and whose motivations? Uh, but it, uh, like the Technocore sent it, and apparently back from the future. Uh, but the exact motivations of the Shrike are always mysterious. Um, and the, the funny thing is, the Shrike helps them all in a different way. Like the Shrike will show up and murder people all over the t- all over the place. And uh, as the story goes on, the Shrike is actually able to leave Hyperion and start to uh, murder uh, like vast numbers of armies and things like that because it can multiply itself through time space so you can have an army of shrikes uh, so they could it can take out an army uh usually it only appears one at a time but that you can have like tons of these things at once um it can also manipulate time so it can like slow you down and just kill a bunch of people in in a, less than a second yeah exactly it's 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 an unstoppable weapon seemingly although we do later see uh more technicore elements that actually fight it and the funny thing is there's an uh, there's a line in i think the third one uh where they say something like it it appears and 
like a friend and Ania, who's one of the main characters says no and she's connected to the technocore she says never a friend no never a friend um and i think that's interesting because one of so one of the themes of john keats poem uh fall of hyperion uh, he wrote the first story was about the Titans and the Olympians. Uh, the first poem when he wrote Hyperion, he never finished it. He came back to it late in his life and tried to rewrite it as a different poem, but he added big chunks of it back into this new poem. Uh, he didn't finish that one either. Um, it's like um, it's like um, uh, Kubla Khan by uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It's an unfinished poem, uh, but great nonetheless. And uh, the big theme of the second go around, the the fall of Hyperion poem, is that um, he seems to be indicating that. As a poet, um, you're elevated by suffering. C- great art is made through suffering, and to like to, you know, the poet in the poem seeks the, this like lofty, perfect world where you could sort of rest and and sit and and stroke your beard and think about high-minded thoughts and not have to mess around with the lesser affairs of mortals. Uh, but um, by doing so, you're cutting yourself off from the wellspring of creativity. Um, and that's certainly true of what happens to Martin Silenus in the in the in the poem or in the story, because he loses the the strike is literally his muse. He was writing this great poem while he was in this poet city, which was near where the the strike uh, existed. Um, and when he left Hyperion, he wasn't able to finish it anymore. We also learned that My- Martin Silenus had this very rough life for a while. He was he was raised in you know luxury. Then he was sent to this backwater world and had to like become a his brain was damaged and he had to relearn how to read and he worked as a slave and he created this great poem out of it. Then he became a millionaire and lost his muse. So it's, it's definitely tied into that idea, but not just as an individual. And I think what the, that's what the Shrike, if the Shrike represents anything specific, it's that it's the idea of, um, as you know, your life is helped by danger and hardship and chaos, uh, which is not a nice thing, but it, it advances things like he he uh he 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 resurrects paul duray and then eventually frees him from the cruciform we'll talk about the cruciforms in a bit uh he you know he he's the thing that gives fedman kassad his life's meaning because he's a warrior and then he defi- he decides i've got to end war i've got to stop war uh martin selenus he's like i say he's a he's a he's a um uh uh, his muse um you know he he keeps he continually for Saul Weintraub he's the answer to this question of the ethics of dealing with God and so he, he's he's actually and and in the later books the Shrike becomes very helpful to the the travelers uh like again he's dangerous he's not someone you want around but he's helping them essentially um, um and yeah I was I was thinking of um the the Keats persona who's um um a, a, a um retrieve uh, what was it? Uh, retrieval program, um, uh, the Shran Loop. Yeah, no. Um, oh, Cybrid. Yes, well, Cybrid. Yeah, but he, he's um, mentally he's he's based on uh, the work of, or he's based on John Keats. So he's it's a attempt to recreate John Keats and put it in a, a flesh body that's like a clone or, or um, and there, there's a sequence where he um, um, one of the one of the Keats uh, bodies. Um, goes to uh, uh, old Earth and and goes sort of recreates uh, John Keats's actual real life death, and the Shrike is just sort of watching the whole time. Yeah, just sort of yeah. standing there, like when they when they travel by uh, horse and buggy, the Shrike is just sort of walking behind them at a at a steady pace, and it's described as 
simultaneously scary and comical. Yeah, and and it's it, he's sort of a like Keats' own life is he died young and he had uh, uh, what do you call it consumption and you know like he's almost a t- uh, it's the classic sort of young poem who dies poet who dies creator who dies young, uh, you know and that that sadness sort of infects and elevates their work. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Andre? By the way, um, yeah, no, um, I to to just to the the, the thing with uh, with the strike. I think it's really really interesting to show like how to explain it. It's it's this. this I don't know if we fully explain it. It's like made of blades, essentially. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's uh, and it's inspired by the African bird strike. The African like, the, the, which would like kill its prey and like put put them on. Right. Um, um, like think like it, like 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 rack them up essentially. Yeah, on a cactus. Um, yeah, yeah, on cactuses. Yeah, but like I think the the shrike uh, for me represents sort of like, uh, like they said, it's like the unseen, like the 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 unseen, the, the unseen powers sort of directing things, like directing things from the future, if you will. Whether that be the Technicore and why they're doing it is still sort of fascinating to me. But I also just I really like the 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 more we try to, uh, the, I, for, I feel, the more I try to interpret it, the less I understand it. <laughs> um, and I and I really like that. I really like the, the the fact that every time the strike shows up, I'm a little scared <laughs> every time. Regardless if it's trying to help me, I'm still scared of it, right? So yeah. I thought, I, I, and that, that, that tension is maintained throughout all four books. Um, and just in terms of like the, the Binding of Isaac sort of a story, I really, really, I think for me, while I did like the first story, I think yeah, it's, it's, I think it's the second story in, in the first in the first Hyperion book. The the, the second chapter would, is about Saul, and that is when that the that that's when the, the book sure? I, that, 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 I, I think it was the third. I think Fetman Kassad was the second. I'm not sure, but yeah. Oh wait, no, wasn't it? Yeah, no, Fetman Kassad yeah. is number two. It's it's Paul Dure, uh, Fetman oh. Kassad, then Martin Solanus is number three. Okay, yeah, so yeah, I guess that was. Uh, um, and Saul is um, number four. So. Okay, yeah, number four. Okay, so I think for four, at least I remember then, um, for four, while I was enjoying the other stories, I think this is when, when, number, when, 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 Saul, when I had read Saul's story, that's when it was like, okay, this is a classic. Like, this is a great story. Because it was very much just the, 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 I'm a philosophy guy. It's just such, it was so steeped in, in religious philosophy that I love it. Like the, one of the more famous lines is about the idea. And I think, I think accurately is that, like, that, um, uh, the the Binding of Isaac story isn't just a test of I, of of Isaac's will, but of God's as well, <laughs> um, or the idea of taking the of, of of the fact that like we should we shouldn't um, that we we should, we should question our gods as much as we worship them, which I think I think was fascinating. Yeah, I, I think um, the the I can't remember the exact phrasing, but the idea is. Um, um, Isaac was testing God to see if God would tell Isaac to, st- or I'm sorry, Abraham to stop. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and in order to properly test that, he had to actually be willing to go through with it if if his God failed him. Um, and there, uh, yeah, a lot of this is uh, a lot of this section is uh, obviously based in like uh, Jewish philosophy and stuff, and like the the word Israel means wrestling with God. It's at least that's one translation. Uh, based on the um, Jacob uh, Jacob wrestling with God, that, that's sort of like the uh, a synecdoche of the the Jewish people as a whole, or at least how, how they view themselves um, frequently. The the idea of constantly just sort of 
dealing with you know their relationship with god it's a back and forth in an interesting way that it's not in christianity <laughs> yeah, it, that, yeah that's exactly right in the in in um it, like the old testament itself is a series like somebody's pointed out that for instance the book of jonah that's an old testament book but it's commenting and and it's almost paradizing the earlier books like it's it's a constant dialogue back and forth it's not this unified whole that everyone seems to assume it is which is very interesting to me about jewish philosophy and jewish religion like it's much more it's it's much more about it, there's a, there's the old joke that if uh, you you ask uh, two Jewish people their opinion you'll get three different opinions. Uh, <laughs> like, um, but, and, and there's also yeah. the the book of Job where Job literally talks God down to like what if there's you know three good people would you save it then? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I just I really I really liked I feel the the, the tragedy of the story a in terms of Saul's story but also just the idea of like sort of sort of expanding it into because i've actually heard i've heard critics being like what's the point of the religious dynamics it feels a little forced in a scientific science fiction universe i argue these people are wrong um i i love when science fiction frankly does go into places that i've never seen before and the idea of 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 mixing frankly pretty steep uh, pretty deep jewish philosophy into uh, a sem- like uh, into a, a science fiction story, I think is great. I, I think one of my one of, um, I took science fiction in school um, uh, as a as a as a as an elective, and my professor once said about science fiction: the deeper you go into space, the less it's about space. <laughs> in terms of like, the deeper we get into sort of uh, higher pollutant science fiction stories, the less these are science the, the science fiction authors are not writing about space at all. I feel that like. Um, Hyperion is a great example of that. The idea of, of the Shrike of of um, Saul's very stoic but beautiful uh, testament to his own daughter, and also the idea of just of testament towards life in general, because he he, he is a person that um, I feel you. I think he uh, Dan Dan Simmons pretty much proves. I think pretty effectively is not a person that is um, a person who is obsessed with like. I'm going to be, you know, the coolest, wisest person. These are all of my hot takes, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. This story makes him interact with his, with, uh, with his religion in a really, really stark way. And I, and I, um, I, I just, I, I really love that. I think that was just what makes, one of the, one of the reasons why this made this, made it a classic. And then just mixing the technology into it. And one thing, I don't know if we talked about this yet, like the, the with the Technicore, the idea of intelligence, I feel is done in a really cool way because it's not like they're just, they just know all everything. They just, they are infinite Google. They also are enlightened. They've, they've achieved the, the technical achieved a level of enlightenment, mm-hmm. which I've never thought of as something that a te- an AI would have strived to achieve. And the fact that they do that in the story is genius in my opinion. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because like that's as the story unfolds, um, like, and, and, tying into what you're saying about religion as well so uh philip yeah, yeah so you didn't read the last two books but uh what happens is they jump forward about 300 years after uh the the the, the first two books end with uh the farcaster portals being shut down to end the artificial intelligence and that of course destroys web society because people are all cut off from each other uh, all of a sudden and you can you have to travel from planet to planet the old-fashioned way uh like basically it's an apocalyptic scenario this whole society just collapses overnight because they shut down the farcaster portals um 
the the Endymion duology is 300 years later. There's a guy named uh, Raoul Endymion, uh, raised on Hyperion, and he sets out to find uh, the child of Bronn Lamia and the John Keats hybrid. Of course, she was pregnant uh, on the pilgrimage, and uh, she was born, raised to uh, about 12 years old, and then she disappeared into the time tombs. And um, and she emerged. She's now emerging 300 years later. Um, and this society has now changed. Um, the Catholic Church uh, on Packham, uh, which uh, uh, one of the one of the pilgrims is Leonard Hoyt, uh, and he was carrying. I should. I. I didn't. We didn't talk about the cruciforms. No, the joke is we haven't even gotten to the cruciforms yet, which a lot of which a lot of people like know about the most, which is fine. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's so much there's in these so books. Much, I mean, yes. yeah. There's so much, not just incident, but like ideas and thing elements of the story. But this is actually very important because uh, one of the characters there was a priest named Paul Dure who encountered these things called the cruciforms on Hyperion, which are these uh, cross-shaped organisms that attach themselves to you, and if you die, they literally resurrect you, and they can resurrect you from like. You could be horribly destroyed, and they would still bring you back. Um, it, at the time, they make you sort of stupider and stupider, and you lose your genitals, and you just become like a, a like this this uh, complete drone, basically. If it happens too many times, yeah. Unfortunately, it uses the R word a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's that's, that's l- one of the few things that really dates this in a unfortunate yeah. way. But yeah, yeah. And um, Paul Dure, so he he uh, he discovered this, and he got the cruciform on him, and he realized it was horrible. It was a it was a blasphemy of the Christian resurrection, and he um, he uh, he he basically stapled himself to a, a an electric tree, which they have on Hyperion, uh, to kill it. And he Tesla stayed there trees, for right. Te- they're called Tesla trees, yeah. And uh, it, it, he tried to kill it, and he stayed there for three years until he was finally cut down. And uh, another priest named Lenar Hoyt took his cruciform and put it on himself. Um, and he was actually carrying two around. Uh, and he's the one who's on the pilgrim pilgrimage. Um, because the farther he gets away from Hyperion, the more in pain he is, and he's just in right. constant pain. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when he comes, when he gets to uh, the Shrike in the second book, the Shrike kills him. And uh, because of the law of conservation of mass, the cruciform can only bring back one of them. So Paul Dure comes back, not Leonard Hoyt, the guy who had been uh, who had first encountered the cruciform. And uh, so Paul Dure is actually a much bigger character than Leonard Hoyt, as the he's kind of carrying Paul Dure, as it were. And he becomes um, the Pope. Yeah, he at the end of the story he becomes the pope. So that's really significant. So what we eventually find out is that the the Catholic Church on Packham became the sort of they filled the void left by the Farcaster portal collapse. Uh and the Catholic Church which created the society called the Pax that went out and started basically conquering the galaxy uh and it, using the cruciforms and like to be born again in the Pax means getting the cruciform applied to you. Uh Paul Dure was actually killed uh about he's he's separated from the cruciform by the by the uh, Shrike, um, but uh, so when he's killed later on, uh, Leonard Hoyt is resurrected rather than Paul Dure, and he becomes the new Pope. And under Leonard Hoyt, things he seems to have done a, a heel turn, uh, and the, pa- the 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 Catholic Church is now uh, very brutal and it's the Holy Roman Empire all over again essentially yeah, yeah it's it's everything bad you want to say about the Catholic Church is going on under these guys they're conquering people they're committing genocide against the ousters still they're wiping like any they're forcing everyone to convert to Catholicism and if they're not it turns out there's horrible stuff happening to them although people don't people aren't aware of that um so they're kind of the villains of the the second book and um uh, they want to catch Aenea, who is the child of Bron Lamia and the Cybrid, uh, the Keats Cybrid, because she has access to the Technocore and she could be bringing this um, this new philosophy that they could 
they they could use to elevate them from this stability. So uh, what's oh, happening? She's the she's the empathy portion of the or at least that's what's set up in the first the first yes. two books. Empathy uh, section of the uh, human ultimate intelligence. So in the future there will be two warring ultimate intelligences: the machine, the ones the machines create, uh, that will replace the machines, and. Um, and so that's why some of the machines are fighting against it. They don't want to die. Um, and there's also a human um, uh, ultimate intelligence that's born out of, by accident, out of combined human thought and then exists outside of time. So humans evolve into God and then God goes back and creates <laughs> and incarnates yeah. itself into different forms. Right. God is, we all eventually evolve into the Godhead, which goes backwards in time and becomes god more or less as we know him uh, or it or them or whatever um and it, but it's challenged by the ultimate intelligence the machine ultimate intelligence oh and, yeah and, and the, the cruciforms were developed by the ai in order to keep uh, a few humans alive to use as processing power the um, um mm-hmm. at least one of the factions of machines that wanted to wipe out humans they realized they still needed some humans so we'll just keep them alive and stupid and you know use them as, right. as cattle yeah, uh, at the time of the Endymion story, they've uh, the the Technocore, which is still around, um, is secretly working through the Catholic Church, and it has corrected the 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 endemification of the cruciform, so people can be killed and brought back as many times as they want. Uh, uh, the antagonist, not the villain of the two books, is a guy named Father Captain uh, De Soya, who is a uh, who's hunting for Aenea throughout the the worlds, and uh, he's got a ship that moves really really fast. But to use it, you basically have to be splattered all over the wall, and then the cruciform will resurrect you. So every time he uses his ship to travel to a to a, a world to try and catch them, uh, he he and his crew die, <laughs> and they get and they have to be brought back by the cruciform essentially. Uh, and it's yeah. of course every bit as painful and horrible as you'd think it would be. Uh, but you know he's a soldier; he's doing his job essentially. Um, but you can see how, like, even more so they've enhanced, like, Simmons has really leaned on the idea of the society is being held in one place and, and can't move and can't evolve when the AIs are involved. And it gets even worse under the Catholic Church. Um, and, like, the only way to move forward is through the sometimes painful ver- uh, painful process of disruption essentially um and uh, which is what they're moving towards in um and so you can essentially you can stop an evolution into something awful but it it causes us of something of an apocalypse and um you know it's not it's not pleasant and that's that's the theme of the hyperion poem and it's also i like i say i think it's what the shrike represents um it's the shrike is sort of a chaos figure who's disrupting everything and in that sense it's helping the heroes but it's also causing pain wherever it goes because it's never pleasant to disrupt this society but it ultimately it's the only way to move forward and to prevent all this atrocity from happening essentially which i thought was interesting i i do really love the idea of like how to explain it like the that that the that that the technical would realize frankly its biggest fear is all the things it cannot completely use in terms of like we don't what do you mean like in terms of like the the its, its biggest fear is like human empathy <laughs> essentially uh, the, the one uncomparable part of the universe which i think again is a part of this is a dan simmons intentionally making a poetic piece here obviously um and the fact that he, they would go back they would create something to go back in time to try to destroy it as like 
they never thought of, hey, what if we try to work with it? What if we try to, no, we're just trying to destroy it by, by getting it before it gets here. I think it was a really, really cool idea. I like the idea of, um, again, just to go back into sort of a more metaphysical piece, to just to bind all of the, the fears that the Technicore have as something that, like, it, it's trying to correct, it's trying to solve for. Again, mm. to, uh, maybe, I think, I think it's trying to do, a, I think again, maybe the Wachowskis and the genius were lifting from that in terms of the architect of the Matrix as, like, the architect of the Matrix is trying to solve for X when it comes to the human problem, if you will. It was trying to find a thing that can, that would be able to fix it with, so it doesn't have to think about it anymore. I feel the Shrike was a version of that. I really, um, I really enjoyed um, all of all of those, all of the sort of like, the the allusions to the philosophical debate that Aaliyah represents when it comes to the strike, uh, and uh, and its relation to the technocorp. Well, remember, it's eventually revealed, uh, Philip, in in Endymion uh, stories, uh, like the idea of mul- of only three factions is actually wrong, and you what you learn is that uh, the AIs, the technocorp, was actually born out of uh, these uh, functions that had to sort of feed on each other like essentially viruses computer viruses um so they had to sort of keep like rewriting and and parasiting each other to evolve consciousness and so that's they they have kind of a war of all against all going on in the technicore um everyone's always trying to like one up each other and and like and then absorb the knowledge of that other one to gain higher sentience and that's kind of where the ui is coming from and that's why they can't like they can, and like there's alliances and allegiances and and plans, but ultimately it's like, well, I have to be the the leader and and come out ahead of this. We also learned that the the the, the creator, one of the creators of the the artificial intelligence back in the day, had introduced a program called the Reaper, which was to basically clear out dead programs to create a, a Darwinian uh, essentially a motive for the for the AI to evolve because there had to be a death. If there wasn't a death, they weren't going to push themselves forward. Uh, and that Reaper essentially became integrated into the AI. And the, there's a strong possibility that that's what the Shrike is. It's the Reaper. Um, like, or, or rather the artificial intelligence having created the Reaper. Uh, like it's, it's a, it's an iteration of that but the reason they can't understand empathy is that it's this war of all against all like they're always fighting each other and so when they see like the possibility of people working together it freaks them out essentially that's what the void that binds is when they talk about that in the later books it's they they encountered the void which binds and they don't understand it so they want to destroy it essentially yeah and like the and and again the, 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 the the genius idea of sort of like tying the void which binds with like dark space or like idea and the idea of like sort of like taking basically making it anything that the AI, the technocore doesn't understand um is i think i think is really i think it's just i think it was a really cool idea so okay so this is a thing that i've thought i've had a bit of a debate with other people about this i want to see your opinions um so and i, I sincerely believe i'm gonna say i believe i believe in this theory um, one, so when, when I was reading the first book, um, and I had no knowledge, frankly, that there were three other books, uh, at the time, um, the books basically kind of, they kind of, the book, the first book kind of ended them sort of like looking glumly at each other, like the, 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 the faction that goes to Hyperion, they sort of look glumly at each other and walk towards the time tombs and it stops. Like they don't, we don't know what happens to them when they get to the time tombs. Everything that happens 
um, afterwards is in the Fall of Hyperion book. That they, and the Fall of Hyperion book is more of a straight-up narrative versus uh, the sort of collection of stories. Um, when I was reading the first book, and I think, yeah, we all can talk about this now, I literally thought, I was like, oh, they all died. <laughs> I really <laughs> thought um, that the story was more... The, the inevitability like the the inevitability of all of their deaths like the Schweik fucking murdered all of them essentially um and they never really got what they were looking for um what do you guys think of that so i felt that in terms of the poetry of the first book the the the, the things that the, the way the book was set up this, and this the sort of the idea of of like fatalism etc cetera, etc cetera, that like I, as much as I really, really, really do like the rest of the series, Hyperion is still my favorite of the stories because of it had that that sense of foreboding for me in the end. So like I felt that the original Andre when he was reading the book was like they all died, <laughs> and then I was and it's over now. And it's like and so I feel I always feel a little disappointed reading the rest of the books because I'm just like they didn't <laughs> die. Okay. Yeah. Um. So but what what do you guys think of that? Philip, do you have any thoughts? Um, well, I mean, the the second book came out the year after, so I mean, that definitely was. I know in reality, we're never play, he was never planning yeah. to do that, of course. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I uh, read most of the first book before finding out it was a series, um, but I, I did know it was a series by the time I got to the very end. So uh, um, yeah, I'm 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 not sure because uh, I, I I didn't have that experience, so I'm not sure. Um, uh, I I do like the format of the first book better than the second. Uh, like the second book's also very good, um, and it does do some interesting things with narrative because a lot of it's just um, the uh, the cybrid dreaming about the other characters because his because part of his personality is in so he's somehow connected, um, and then he just starts dreaming their their ideas too, and um, he he like can't explain why this is working, but it is. Um, but it, that even that sort of dropped as it goes on. Um, I, I do like the format of the first one. Uh, like, like you said, it's just a bunch of short stories set in the same world, but they're different genres that sort of cross over with each other. I, I mean, I make a comic book that tries to do that. So yeah. <laughs> no, just for me, it's like it felt that at least tonal- tonally wise. Because it's right, this right cult's been that we, we haven't even fully got to. My God. Anyways, um, <laughs> the Church of the Final yeah. Atonement, which uh, worship yeah. the Shrike as a uh, uh, figure that, like, they're an apocalypse cult, basically. Essentially, yeah, and like because of that, and because of the this just the, the all the stories we know about the Shrike, because we only hear again since for in the first book, we don't you only hear story you only hear stories about the Shrike because you don't. I mean, you don't. They never met the Shrike themselves, obviously. Um, but like, I felt that like there was an inevitability that they all felt, the pilgrims all felt like they were probably going to die. <laughs> like they weren't actually going to maybe get to the thing that they were looking for um, and, and really reach the goals that they were, that they were attending that the, there was a feeling at the end of the book of like all of them getting ready to walk towards their own deaths. People, you know, the, the um, everyone's getting their, 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 their nice clothes, their proper uniforms, they're sort of looking at each other. They're getting. They're preparing themselves, and they walk. They walk together towards the end. I felt that was a really, really poetic ending. That I would feel. I felt for me at least, kind of left this idea of like, oh shit, they're gonna die. 
Um, I don't know. And, 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 I, and I know obviously I mean, some of them now do. That, you know, that there was, that wasn't the case, but it's just, um, I don't know. I, I, I did, I did really enjoy that ending. I think Frank, okay. I guess maybe my hot take is of all of the endings of the book, the first book has the best ending in my opinion. So, <laughs> I, it, yeah. It's interesting because, um, I see where you're coming from. Like that's the one where it feels structurally like a thing. And it's absolutely from one perspective, there's no ending to the first book. Like you, you need the second book or like to see what happened to them. Essentially it'd be, it would be unsatisfying in one sense, but there's absolutely some value in having a story where it ends on a note of what's going to happen next. We don't know. We're facing, as you say, we're facing uncertainty and possible death if not probable death, uh, like you're right, that that would have worked as an ending. I mean, I don't think it's that kind of story. I don't think it's that ch- challenging. Like, especially as the series goes on, it gets very pulpier and pulpier. I noticed, like Endymion and the the, the Endymion duology, like almost every chapter ends on a cliffhanger. Like it's that it's 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 and it's it's much more like, hey, cool, here's cool pulp stuff happening. Like it's. Um, so it's it's literary aspirations are mostly contained to the first two books, I would say, more than anything. Um, so I, I do get what you're saying, like, and and this also speaks to the point of if you're if you're making a jackdaw story, as I believe they're sometimes called, which is to say a novel made up of a bunch of other stories that kind of create a collage, a mosaic. Um, like it's a little difficult to end it because you have to have that one big finishing story and you've left behind the structure that you were adopting right so um in that sense it's like yeah like the the fact that the second book is a self-contained second book on the one hand it's like oh you lost the structure that we had in the first book but on the other hand it's it allows you to wrap up all the narratives properly in a way you couldn't if you'd packed it into the, the first book because it wouldn't have felt like it was part of the same structure. So it's kind of like, I, I absolutely agree. Like if they'd ended at the end of the first book, it would have been like, Oh my God, you're not going to tell us what happened. But at the other end, like literally speaking, yeah, it would have, it would have been okay to end it that way. I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I, so that I is, I wasn't that actually planning on reading the second book for this because uh, I didn't think I had time. I ended up sort of mainlining it. Uh, again, these are very long books, even <laughs> I was listening to them via audiobooks, but they were 21 hours each, which is yes. a lot of time. Um, but uh, I'm glad I did because the second book is very good. But uh, I was satisfied with the first book, honestly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, no, I mean, I think that like uh, I'm, this is obviously you know one person's interpretation, but like arts, arts all, all art is valid. So shut up, anyways. <laughs> yeah. I think that, like, there's also, I think that, like, what makes these stories, for me, so fascinating is this, uh, is the mix of the poetry. And I feel the poet, like, I mean, hottest take, um, you know, Keats died before he finished Hyperion. What, it kind of poetically makes sense to sort of stop at before the end happens, too. You know what I'm saying? But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, on that note, I think that's a, that's probably a good note to end. Uh, if unless we had any final thoughts, uh, we have gone pretty long. But hey, it's our big special premiere episode, so that's probably okay. Um, um, I've yeah. got, I have one. I have one sort of critique of the story. Okay. I would say. Yeah. Um, and this is sort of like I. Here's it. It's understandable where we live. In, this is not. We're not in the same sensibilities that we were before. But I still am not a fan of. The, born, the, the the trope of the born sexy yesterday sort of thing with Endemium in terms of like so yeah. Aaliyah in the book in, in the books which I guess this is a fair one we should make Aaliyah in the books 
um, has a romantic relationship with Endemion in the story. The problem is, like, since she has all of her memories, she still feels a lot of romantic feelings when she's 12. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God, why, Dan, why? Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of those, it's one of those things where it's like, they don't really, they, it doesn't, res- no, nothing, like, overtly creepy happens i'm just never a fan of one no i would go oh. further and say yes it does it, it does get a little uncomfortable there's some like you know um she's like kind of coming on to him as a 12 year old and it, the thing that dr- i really don't get about that is i didn't feel like it added much to the story there's, yeah that was weird like it doesn't like she could have come out of the time tombs as an adult and what would have been different i mean i guess it's the whole idea of like he thinks of her as like it's made very clear that Rawl, the main character does not think of her that way until she becomes older and they because of uh, time debt like at one point she ages like five years ahead and like there's other points where she ages so like they are adults once they become romantically uh linked but um and it's made very clear that like he thinks of her as someone he's supposed like a kid he's supposed to protect uh until suddenly she's this adult woman when they re when they meet again later uh but it's like the author is getting in there and kind of making it a bit creepy in that sense i think so uh, like yeah it's it's it doesn't that's it doesn't add anything to the story i think it was a bad choice like if you were going to adapt the story i would I would have her come out of the time tombs as an adult. I would not have her come out as a as a kid because I don't think that adds anything to it. It's not like she comes out as a baby. Like it's it's like she has to they, she has to age a bit first. So why not have her age into adulthood anyway? Yeah, she's she's twenty once she comes back. Duh. Yeah, yeah, we, exactly. We, I know, and then I no longer have to think about them. And then <laughs> yeah. we didn't do that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's some there's some worrisome stuff there in that sense. I agree. Uh, it's not it a bad I, I choice. It's at least also just at least a, like you know I, I want to make sure that people who are reading who haven't heard about this before like they know just they know that that that's in there you know what I mean so yeah. Well, our newly restarted pilgrimage has reached the end of its first day, so it's time to rest before we start again. Uh, we've been the poet Adam Prosser and the philosopher Philip Rice, and we were joined briefly by mysterious Templar Andre Gordon, who I'm sure is not going to sell us out to the artificial intelligences. Um, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and the parasitic life forms that resurrect us every time we're killed. Uh, if you're subscribed, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, illustrations and comics, and the ability to travel through the Farcaster portals. Now, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.com co for the links so you can follow us on twitter which is the void that binds at wmu podcast or prankster 36 for me or spear Hafok a with an f for philip uh we also want to thank our new sponsors that you heard about there at the tokyo podcast tokyo beat podcast network um yes uh so i learned that there is was a saturn and Ferandil tv show in the 70s um that somehow existed without me hearing about it which uh <laughs> if anything is going to make me believe in the mandela effect it's that um it it was uh on did 13 episode hour-long episodes in 1977 uh it uh, it's called uh, saturnino ferandola because it's uh Ital- based on the italian silent movie um and uh there are three random episodes online that are completely in italian with no english subtitles so if anybody uh, this is a long shot if anybody has access to these episodes <laughs> or can do translations i would like to see this thing uh the fact that it exists and i can't really watch it is upsetting me 
So. <laughs> the world's number one Saturday, English-speaking Saturday for Andal fan is not allowed to see for Saturday for Andal TV show. But uh, it'll happen. We'll get a report on it. We'll do a special episode about it. No, we won't. I don't know. We'll talk about it at some point. So until next time, keep your barge pointed west and stay clear of the pointy bits on that robot.